Buchem Aboyim to the third in the continuing series of lectures, Shi'urim, on Rabbi Yashabesa Levechik's Emergence of Ethical Man. The last two lectures, um, we've given what you would call a philosophical background to the work. The work certainly was written with a philosophical background. We spoke about Kant, we spoke about Bergson. And now, as we, I think as I promised in last week's year, we're going to actually start reading the book. Um, on page three, which is the beginning of the book, chapter one, man is an organic, me- uh, organic being, being. So Rabbi Soloveitchik said, should we inquire of a man historian of philosophy, or of any educated person well acquainted with history ideas, what he understands by the word man, he would immediately advise us about a basic controversy concerning the death or essence, essence of this being. By the sheer force of associative thinking, he would at once refer to three disparate anthropolo- anthropological philosophical viewpoints. The biblical, referred to by many as the Judeo-Christian view, the classical Greek, and the modern empirical scientific. Pressed further, he would probably say the discrepancy between the concept of man dating back to antiquity, biblical and the classical Greek, is that far not as wide as the gap separating those two from the empirical scientific one. As a matter of fact, he would say, we may speak of some degree of affinity of commensurability between the biblical and classical anthropologies. Both are united in opposition to the sign of to man. They set men apart from other forms of organic life. And then goes on, Rabbi Soloveitch, to explain that the biblical as well as the classical Greek understanding of man right, is that man is in fact actually a transcendental being. As he says, um, right, um, that the, um, the, for the Bible, right, the mystical image, I'm on page four, the mystical image of the transcendental God, and put in parentheses, Selim Elohim, as well as the metaphysics of the news and the logos for Greek antiquity, serve as the ground of man's essential autonomy and his quote-unquote incommensurability with other living beings in the ontic realm. So in other words, both the Greek, the classical Greek, which means the Greek philosophical understanding of man, and the biblical understanding of man, right, are more or less commensurable with each other. They understand man as a transcendental being set apart from the rest of the natural and physical world. He goes on to say, in contradistinction, the modern scientific viewpoint spurns the idea of human autonomy as mythical and unfounded, and denies the antic discrepancy between man and animal plant. The union carnival galactic is looked upon as indispensable parts of all chemical sciences. Man, animal, and plant are all placed in the realm of matter, organized in living structures and patterns. The difference between the vegetative, animal, and human life concern just the degree of diversity, complexity, and organization of life processes. So in other words, science understands man as no different from nature. In other words, the Bible and classic Greek philosophy understand man as separate from nature, whereas modern science um, understands man as part of nature. Right? As a matter of fact, he says, the contemporary scientific view insists that man emerged very late in the process of organic evolution and differs very little from his non-human ancestors as far as biological existence is concerned. He is an integral part of nature. Even the so-called spiritual activities cannot lay claim to autonomy and singularity. There is no unique grant of spirituality in man. So in other words, spirit, soul, is reduced to psyche and a ladder to the function of biological uh, uh, occurrence. 
Okay, so in other words, this is scientific view of man, understand man is fully embedded within the organic world, and this in fact finds its probably most explicit um, expression in theory of evolution. Now, he goes on to say is that indeed one of the most annoying scientific facts which the modern homo religious accounts and tries vainly to harmonize with belief is the so called theory of evolution. In our daily jargon, we call this antinomy evolution versus creation. The phrase does not exactly reflect the crux of the controversy, for the question does not revolve around divine creation, mechanistic evolution, and such. We could find a solution of some kind to this contrary. Says Rabbi Soloveitchik, the um, the um, the antinomy, the contradiction, the issue of evolution versus Judaism, right? Is not so much evolution versus creationism. Rabbi says we can find a solution to that. And in fact, actually, in the um, in the Blau lectures, um, in fact, actually, um, he says explicitly, um, evolution and creation can be reconciled merely by saying that six days is not absolutely so, but it's indefinite and may be longer. So in other words, as far as Rabbi Soloveitchik was concerned, there's no stila, no contradiction between the evolutionary account of man's creation and the biblical account Right? That's not the issue. That can be easily reconciled. Ah, what appears to be irreconcilable? What in fact is irreconcilable is the concept of man as the bearer of the divine image with the equal, um, equalizing, there's something wrong over here in, this, in, the, in the text, of man equaling, of man and animal plant existences. In other words, the antic or tiny art of man is the problem. In other words, the problem is, is that what appears to be, says Rabbi Soloveitchik, is that evolution understands man as part of nature. It's part of the organic natural world. Whereas the Bible and Greek philosophy understand man as being separate from the organic world. Okay? Okay, now. Rabbi Soloveitchik wants to claim that this conception is wrong. In fact, actually, this is not true. And that's what he says. What he says is, however, I wish to emphasize that the widespread opinion that within the perspective of the there is no place for religious act, for relatedness of man to eternity and infinity is wrong. Perhaps more than man as a divine person, man as an animal needs religious faith and commitment to a higher authority. God takes man animal to his confidence, addresses him, and reveals to him his moral will. So in other words, Rice checks this is not true. The idea that man is completely separate from the natural world is not true. On the contrary, man's, man as an animal is much more commensurable with man's need for a god for religious faith. That's what Rabbi Soloveitchik says. He goes on and says that, and he goes on and says, our task now is to investigate the cogency of the almost dramatic assertion that the Bible proclaimed the separateness of man from nature and, and otherness. In other words, what Salvation now is going to challenge what people think is that the Bible, the Chumash, understands man, just as Greek philosophy understands man, as being separate from nature. Our Salvation is going to claim this is not true. It is certain that the fathers of the church and also the Jewish medieval scholars believe that the Bible preached this doctrine. Medieval and even modern Jewish moralists have almost canonized this viewpoint and attributed to a predictive validity. Yet the consensus of many, however great and distinguished, does not prove the truth or fullness of a particular belief. 
I have always felt that due to some erroneous conception, we have actually misunderstood the Judaic anthropology and read into the biblical texts ideas which stem from an alien source. Okay, Rabbi Soloveitchik is actually making a statement which, um, which is a continuation of what he writes at the end of the halakhic mind. The end of halakhic mind, Rabbi Soloveitchik says, we need a new philosophy of Judaism based upon the halakha. But he says that the philosophy of the Rishonim, of the medieval authorities, was rooted in philosophies which are alien to Judaism. Now, of course, he hasn't spoken about the halacha yet. He's going to soon do so. But it's clear over here that Rabbi Soloveitchik understands that the widespread consensus that the philosophy of the Bible, the Jewish philosophy, looks at man transcendentally in the same sense as Greek philosophy does, is actually not a philosophy which is intrinsic to the Chumash itself. It comes from an alien source, which means Greek philosophy. Okay? The sooner biblical texts are placed in their proper setting, namely the oral tradition with its almost endless religious awareness, the clearer and more certain I am that Judaism does not accent unreservedly the theory of man's actual separatism within the natural order of things. So Salvation says, if you learn the Chumash in its proper setting, within the oral tradition, then it will be clear that Judaism understands that man is not really separate, so separate, from the natural physical world. Now, what does Rabbi Soloveitchik say? What, is, what does he mean by the oral tradition? This is what's written here in the text of the Emergent of Ethical Man. However, I want to read from the Blau notes, and it'll be clear that what he means by the oral tradition is the halacha, and not Jewish philosophy as understood by the Rishonim, by the medieval scholars. Okay? He says here, I'm calling now for the Blau lectures. Is man autonomous or one of the organic forms of existence is our problem? All we know of man in the Bible is through Christian channels. That is a separate being. And whether an idea is simply Jewish can best be judged by the halacha, not the agadita. To understand any work as the authority meant to convey it, you must have lived in the same social environment and cultural fortunes as the author. Mankind is changeable in his cognitive adventures, and to say that I understand Aristotle means the tradition of Aristotle, which of course has been subject to change. In Halacha there is a Messiah, a tradition as to method, but I give an interpretation of Maimonides that does not necessarily mean that Maimonides meant just that. If measured by Halacha standards, it is correct and suffices. That's the Agadatur, there's no tradition, nor philosophy do have a tradition. In Halacha there's a certain Kabbalah without any missing links. While in Agadatur and certainly philosophy, there are such missing links. Basically, what Rabbi is claiming is the true understanding of the Chumash is through the Halacha, not through Agadatur. Translated in terms of the emergence of ethical man, what he's saying is the way that he's showing him understood the Chumash was influenced by philosophical dash Greek sources, but that doesn't mean that that's the true viewpoint and Weltenschaum of the Chumash itself. That's what he's saying. So now we have the circle is connected. When Rabbi Soloveitchik said at the end of Halachic Mind, we had to produce a philosophy of the Halacha, what he, and not the philosophy of the Rishonim, what he really meant to say is, we have to produce a philosophy that understands man as part and parcel and embedded within the natural world, 
not separate ontologically, ontically, to use my Slavic term, from nature. And this is in fact commensurable with the halacha in contradistinction to the viewpoint of the Rishonim, which reflected a certain worldview. And he's also saying in contradiction, perhaps even to the Agatha. Because there's no Messiah in Agatha. There's only Messiah in the halacha. If you want to look at the true view of the Chumash, we have to look at it from the standpoint of halacha. Not from the standpoint of the Agatha. That's what he's saying. And certainly not from the viewpoint of Rishonim who is influenced by philosophers that could have been alien to this, I'm going to call it, immanental understanding of the Chumash of the nature of man relationship to the world. That's what Rasulavitchik means when he says the oral traditions. Okay. Rabbi Soloveitchik goes on and on and in fact actually um, he says in page 12 I'm skipping over I'm leaving it for you to read the book but in page 12 he says man in the story of creation does not occupy a unique, a unique ontic position he is rather a drop of the cosmos that fits into the schematic of naturalness and concreteness the Torah presents to us a successive order of life emergence and divides it into three phases. The last of these living structures is man. The viewpoint, hear this? The viewpoint is very much akin to modern science. Christianity split the story of creation in two and analyzed the story of man without taking cognizance of that of animal and plant. That is why it arrived at half truth and misinterpreted the biblical anthropology. And in fact, actually, as I quoted um, before that, Rabbi Soloveitchik says that our common conception of the Chumash is through Christian channels. That's what he says in the Blau Notes. Okay? Okay. So now, Rabbi Soloveitchik has begun the book by stating outright he's going to reject the philosophy of the Rishonim, including at least the philosophy of the Berger Nefuchet, the guy from Replaced. And even though he's going to quote it a few times, but when, it's, when the Berger Nefuchet is user-friendly, he's going to quote it. And he's going to establish a philosophy of Judaism in accordance with his reading of the Pesukim and in accordance with the Halacha, which views man, as he says, as very, very much a part of the natural order. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that man is only a part of natural order. Chas v'shalom v'chas v'shalom. I anticipate some people are going to reach that conclusion. He doesn't say only, but he says certainly man is in fact actually very much a part of the natural order. Okay, that's what he's going to say. We're going to leave that with an asterisk because I'm going to get to that in a little while. Okay, now, the fact is, is that we see how fundamentally revolutionary Rabbi Soloveitchik's work is. In fact, not only does Rabbi Soloveitchik say this is the view of the Rishonim, but he himself says this is the view of modern Jewish moralists. I would say this is probably the viewpoint of just everybody who's listed at the time of the Rishonim until Rabbi Soloveitchik himself. Okay, but we'll get back to that. But this is actually the Revolution, revolution or Slavishik is making in Jewish philosophy. And in the sense that halacha, 
accepts and assumes the naturalness of man, Rabbi Soloveitchik in this book is promising us what he promised to us at the end of the halachic mind, a philosophy of the halach, or a philosophy of Judaism based upon the halach. Now, this raises a very, very fundamental question. So where is the room for metaphysics? I mean, this is not chas v'shalom, chas v'shalom, a philosophy of evolution. But where does this raise? Where is the role of metaphysics? Ashai. Okay. So what I want to do is, I want to investigate how does Rabbi Soloveitchik understand ruchnius, metaphysics, ruchnius. Now, I'm going now to page 9, the first paragraph. There Rabbi Soloveitchik says, Man's haughtiness becomes for Christianity the metaphysical pride of an allegedly unconditioned existence. Jewish biblical pride signifies only overemphasis upon man's abilities and power. In view of all of that, the New Testament stresses man's alien status in the world of nature and his radical uniqueness. To be sure, all the ideas are not only Christian, but Jewish as well. Christianity did not, ma- add, did not add much to the biblical philosophical anthropology. We come across a dual concept of men in the Bible. His element of transcendence was always well known to the biblical Jews. Rosalavechik agrees. You know, of course he agrees that man is transcendent. Okay? So now, how do we resolve man's transcendence with what? With man's imminence, man's embeddedness in the organic world. And he doesn't make two dinner. This is not Rabchayim. He doesn't make two dinner. Okay? Says Rabbi Soloveitchik, his transcendence, I'm quoting it, I want you to quote very, very carefully. His transcendence was always seen against the background of naturalness. The canvas was man's imminence. The canvas was man's imminence. Transcendence was just projected on it as a display of colors. It was more a modifying than a basic attribute of man. What's man do? What's man do? What do you mean by this? Let me read it again. His element of transcendence was well known to the biblical Jew. Yet transcendence was always seen against the background of naturalness. The canvas was man's imminence. Transcendence was just projected on it as a display of colors. It was more a modifying than a basic attribute of man. What does Rabbi Soloveitchik mean by these words? That's very important. Without this, What does he mean by these words? So what I would like to do is I would like to tell you what I think he means by these words. Once again, we're trying to understand the connection between naturalness and transcendence. Or what I would call imminence versus metaphysics. In fact, the use of imminence is actually something that Rabbi Soloveitchik does too. On page 13, Rabbi Soloveitchik says, let us first analyze the imminence of man. Rabbi Soloveitchik, by embedding man within the natural world, which he says is the viewpoint of both the Chumash and eventually the viewpoint of the Halacha, is in fact actually 
um, describing man as an imminent being, imminent being within the, within the world, within the natural world. However, there's a transcendence. What is the relationship between man's imminence and man's transcendence? What is the relationship between naturalness, physics, and metaphysics? The same question. Now, for this, I'm going to go to a later on in the, another part of the book this part of the book actually is on page 163 it's called chapter 9 and it's entitled Charismatic Man as a Historical Personality and there Mr. Soloveitchik speaks about Avram Avino and then after that he speaks about Meshach Rabbeinu now Rabbi Soloveitchik speaks about the concept of what I would call the concept of okay and there Rabbi Soloveitchik makes the following statement it's a quote that we've seen on page 176 he says here the first concept of immortality as coined by Judaism is a continuation of a historical existence throughout the ages. It differs from transcendental immortality insofar as the deceased person does not lead an isolated, separate existence in a transcendental world. The identity persists on a level of concrete reality disguised as a people. It asserts itself in the consciousness of the many who trace their roots to the one. Yet the metaphysical immortality is based upon historical immortality. Whoever does not identify himself with the historical eagle and remains on the natural level cannot attain immortality. The first consequence of death takes place in the realm of history. Okay? And then he goes on and says, the argument is comprehensible only when we consider it from the viewpoint of historical per- perpetuation. So here Rabbi Soloveitchik is speaking about historical, which would be more physical and natural, not to believe natural immortality, and between metaphysical immortality. Okay? Now, what does he mean here by metaphysical immortality and historical immortality? It would appear that historical immortality sounds very much like what we would call the immanental understanding of immortality. There was an immanental understanding of immortality, and there's what's called a transcendental understanding of immortality. Okay? Now, what is this? So, Arisolovechik develops this thing, right? And says like this. He says on page 169, as a natural being, as an individual represents his genus, the charismatic personality is subject to a biological process of life which ends in death. Adam, as the archetype of such a personality, was mortal. The historical Abraham, as historical personality, attained immortality. Yet, Abraham did not conquer death in the metaphysical, transcendental sense. His immortality is through and through historical. Now, what's historical is in contradiction to transcendental. Immortality, which consists in the charismatic proximity to a distant future, and closeness to a remote past. Immortal is the personality which incarnate in anticipation of the multitude of a group, 
is in turn incarnated by that group in retrospect. Okay, so in other words, basically, the charismatic personality is subject to biological process of death. And the mortality, in a certain sense, right, is, in this sense, is historical. Okay? Not metaphysical, not transcendental. Okay? Now, where is the imminence? Where is the imminence? And, and Rabbi Soloveitchik is not chasfishalah denying transcendental metaphysical immortality. He's not denying it. But what is the relationship between metaphysical and historical immortality? So Rabbi Soloveitchik, what is historical immortality? He speaks about it. But I think his major point is on page 173 where he speaks about prophetic and ethical memory. He says on page 173, the very beginning, historical belonging, which binds the individual with an array of past and future generations, is the basis of Jewish historical understanding, through not, although no history can afford to free itself from this burden. Yet it is not an act of metaphysical reincarnation, as the Lorena School asserted, nor is it a mere psychological continuity of a collective memory. It asserts itself in two unique attitudes. This is what's called a prophetic memory, right? And an ethical memory. In other words, Rabbi Soloveitchik is saying that historical belonging is part of what he calls memory. And he makes, here he makes two dinim, dinim, prophetic memory and ethical memory. Now, I'm not going to go into this in detail, but it's very, very interesting. We spoke about Henry Bergson last week. Henry Bergson, as I mentioned, was a philosopher of imminence. Henry Bergson understood that there was an Ilan Vital, which is a creative force which is embedded within the organic world. That we spoke about last week. And we mentioned the Balatanya, and this Ilan Vital figures both in the emergence of ethical man and in the lectures of Rosalavechik he mentions this several, several times. However, Bergson's philosophy of imminence was not only limited to a creative force within organic matter. Bergson wrote a very famous book called Matter and Memory. In Bergson's book, Bergson creates what has been called, certainly what the French philosopher Deleuze called, an immanental theory of time. What is an immanental theory of time is? What is time? What is time? So, there's different, there were different philosophies of time. For example, if you would ask a physicist, what is time? Let's speak about a Newtonian physicist. So time basically is an arrow. It's a measurement. We think of time as an objective arrow, and we can locate points on the line segment, the temporal segment, or the temporal line, right, to indicate events in time. The present is also a point on the line. What comes before it is the past. What comes after it, what comes after is the future. Even though Einstein, in a certain sense, revolutionized, revolutionized this concept of time, but nonetheless, time is a parameter, is an objective physical, right, um, physical measurement, or dimension. 
Of course, the concept of time was also changed throughout history. So, for example, there are some people, for example, the existentialists, writes out Heidegger, Imachemoy, even Husserl, understood that basically time is subjective. For the existentialist, the essence of time is really in the future. Man always projects the future. Man always lives in the future. Man lives in his future goals, his future tasks, his, you know, his future expectations. That was what we can't call the existentialist understanding of time, right? Of course, I'm not going through this in a lot of detail, but I would say that's sort of like what we call more or less the existentialist concept of time. It's much more of a subjective concept of time. It's not, it's a, this doesn't mean that they rejected the objective, scientific concept of time, but in other words, the objective kind basically comes after this more subjective notion of time. And that is what's called psychological time. Psychological time is basically some people like live in the past. We call them people who are psychologically not well. And they live in the past. Now, in a sense, what all these concepts of time have in common is that the person who's viewing time, they, they, they originate within the person. Certainly, post-Kant, even objective time, is basically a construction of the human mind. So it has its, its bakoya, its source, its subject. For the existentialist, certainly, time is subjective, so it has its source in the subject. And psychological time, for sure, has its source in the subject. Comes along, Bergson, and in a very, very long book, which I'm not going to go into, maybe when we miss the ship, if we get up to this, if we get, if we chronologically get up to the, um, thinking about time, we get up to the, uh, the kind of personality, we'll go into this in very detail. Bergson wanted to claim that the true time is really the past. Man, even though man lives in the present, man is embedded within the sum total of all collective memories. In other words, Bergson understood that the essence of time was historical. And man, even though in the present, lives within history as part of embedded in history. So what Bergson did is Bergson, Bergson immanenticized time. Man is imminent within the sum total of all memories, right, of the past. That's what man is. And man operates and exists within this embedded collective memory. I think Roy Soloveitchuk, I have to look again, quotes Bergson's memory, but whatever it is, matter of memory, but whatever it is, for, cer for certainly, page 173, prophetic memory is a from version of Bergson's matter and memory. And that's what's called historical. Messiah. Tradition. A Jew lives with Messiah. That means a Jew lives in the past. But the past is not something that I look at the past and say, oh, that's the past that I imposed my viewpoints in the past. The past is in the present. The past is an active part of my life. 
Bergson basically thrust the past into the present. A person lives in the past. A person dynamically lives in the past. That's what Bergson did. If you read Bergson's book, you see he has this um, inverted um, cones in which he describes geometrically how memory and works. Basically, Bergson's immunization of time through memory constitutes Rabbi Yishabeh Soloveitchik's concept of the Seder of tradition. Then he goes on and speaks about the mitzvah of Schiras Mamar Sinai, which by the way, Del HaGav is not listed by the Rambam, but listed by the Ramban. In mitzvah's license, they shall by a Rambam. Remembering Haras Mamar Sinai, we live, Sinai continues. Kol Yosef. We live in Sinai. that's what we do. Okay, now, so now, what is what Yoshev Yasalvejik said? That just like on page 9, man's transcendence has to be understood as within the background of man's imminence. There he's speaking about physical transcendence and physical imminence. I claim. Man, immortality, which means man's spiritual time, his transcendental time, has to be understood within the canvas of man's immanental time, which is what? Which is this, historical memory. So in other words, the transcendent has to be understood within the background of imminence, just as man's spiritual side, his transcendence, his metaphysical transcendence, has to be understood within the background of man's imminence, physical imminence, so too man's transcendental time, his immortality, has to be understood within the canvas of man's temporal imminence, which is this historical belonging. Now, very good, but what does this all mean? Now, please this is the Balatanya. <coughs> this is the Balatanya. The Ein Saif of HaKadosh Baruch from the standpoint of man, is imminent. Just as the Kodesh look at this, his spirituality is imminent within the world. That's what Rabbi Soloveitchik is saying. Man's transcendence has to be understood as, as, as within the imminent world whether it be the physical world, the natural world, or whether it be the physical temporal world, which is historic, the historical belonging. That's Rabbi Soloveitchik's shita. Rabbi Soloveitchik, when Rabbi Soloveitchik rejects the metaphysics of the Rishonim, he's, re- he's rejecting metaphysics as transcendence. For Rabbi Soloveitchik, at least from the standpoint of Judaism, from the standpoint of man, from man's point of view, trans metaphysics is not 
transcends it. It's imminent. And that's the muscle that he uses when he uses the canvas and transcendence. His language is, I want to use his language, projected on a display of colors. What does it mean to project transcendence on a canvas? So I remember many, many years ago when I was I had a Talmud who came to my house and his parents came along with him for Shabbos one time. Very, very nice people. The prices. Gabriel Price who's now a more than a mashkiach if you was listening so his mother I think was an art is an art historian so we were discussing painting so she said to me what's the problem of art what's the problem of art the problem of art is how do you portray a three dimensional world on a two dimensional canvas that's the problem of art okay and we were speaking about modern art, and modern art was somehow a way of dealing with the two-dimensionality of the canvas. That's what she said to me. I remember that she said. Am I right or wrong? Anyway. Now, transcendence is something which is transcendental, right? Save of Kalalman. What's the Tzimtzum? What's the Bechina Malchus? The Balatanya? Right? How do we take something which is transcendent and put it within a physical world? How is it possible to take the infinite and put it within a finite convoy? But the time you say, is that the Bechila Malchus? It's the name. Bechila Malchus. That's what Rabbi Sotavajic is saying. The transcendent is projected on a canvas means something which is more than two-dimensional. Three-dimensional, right? And greater than two, strictly greater than two. It's projected within two dimensions, a canvas. Rabbi Soloveitchik here is basically saying in fancy Germanic English, the shita of the Balat, what the Balatanya calls the shita of the Malchus. B'china Malchus, Yichutatoy, the Gzoya says it that you take that which is transcendent and infinite and place it within one, that which is finite. That's called the tzimtzum. That's what he's saying. So in other words, we don't look for metaphysics and transcendence beyond the world. That's who? Homo religiosus. But we look for metaphysics within the world. The Balatanya. The Balatanya. If that's true, Rabbi Soloveitchik has to shalom. He's not denying metaphysics. But he's saying that metaphysics is like the Kav of the Ainsoif, which penetrates, Mamalakal Alman, it penetrates the physical world, or whatever temporal world which I'm dealing with, which I'm discussing. And when it comes to time, I'm dealing with the temporal, immanental temporal world of historical imminence. That man, the Jew, lives within Messiah, within tradition. And whatever transcendental imminence, transcendentalism there is, is 
What the Rambam say, but it's all imminent. It's all projected upon the imminence of the temporal realm. That's how Rabbi Yashabeah, that's what Rabban Shah Yisrael is saying. Yeah. In the Balatania's philosophy, is there an Ikaran Teufel in the, meta, in, the, in the metaphysics and the physics? Is one Ikaran is one Teufel? No, no, because this is meta, that's man's point of view. From man's point of view, man, and therefore, that's what mitzvahs are. For the Balatanya, the mitzvahs are come to Megala, the Ein Seif, which is the content of the physical world. When a person does a mitzvah, so he's Megala, the Ein Seif, which is in the physical world, God, Ein Seif, which is with his own, his own shama, with his own gulf, etc., etc. That's what Balatanya says. Because when the Rav Soloveitchik talks about transcendence as a modifier. No, modifying me, but I don't think it's that, but, but it's still imposed upon it. In other words, it it it's like it's it, it, it modifies, but it modifies it from within. But a modifier by definition is a teufel. That's what you're saying, but no, it's not. No? I don't think so. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. But it's, I first have to understand the canvas and go in. That's what he means. I don't think it costs for show. But whatever it is, in any case, that's the the question about Rabbi Soloveitchik has created a new philosophy of Judaism based upon biological and temporal imminence. Allah Berkson, which is a, in fact, the secular philosophical expression of the sheet of the Balatanya. That's what he's done. And in such, this is in fact a rejection of the Rambam in the Merit of where Ruchni is, spirituality, is intellectual. Man's contact, man's connection with the Kodesh Baruch is through a cycle with his intellect. Right? The Raman says in Hashkacha, the Raman learns in chapter 17 of section 3 of the Mernavulchim, is by virtue of man's intellect. Nevoa, the Navi, perceives the, the thoughts of Akadosh Bolochu. All of nature operates from the intellectual spheres down to the physical world. The Rambam's Understanding of the nature of man is man relates to God through transcendence. Rabbi Soloveitchik understands that man relates to God through the Luchnius, through the Einsoif, which is embedded within the imminent, which is imminent to the physical world, right? And by doing so, Rabbi Soloveitchik has established a philosophy of Judaism which is true to the biblical halachic conception and which is true to modern science to a certain degree too. This is Rabbi Soloveitchik's emergence of ethical man. Okay. Um, I've given people a lot to think about for next week. We haven't even spoken about halachic man. We're actually, Rabbi Soloveitchik is actually, this is the theme of halachic man too, by the way. But in any case, we're going to stop over here. Next week, we're going to speak about how the halacha fits into this. Rabbi Soloveitchik is speaking about Zoyim. How do I understand these 